Chapter 16 Continued It was probably all of two hours by the time the sun caught up with me, beating on my back and shoulders as I went. It had risen over the mountain behind me and was once again my predator. As soon as that happened, I fell to the grass, drenched in sweat. I was on a tilted meadow just out of the woods. Some kind of snake slithered away as I flopped to my stomach. I watched it swerve downhill and could only imagine grabbing it and chewing its head off. I quickly abandoned that desire. There was something prickly near my nose that I had to pluck and toss away. All things said, I was fairly comfortable lying in my meadow. It was still dewy and gave me some pleasure as the dew soaked into my suit and shirt. I had finally succeeded in being able to ignore the bugs. I really didn't care about them anymore. There were some pretty flowers, bluebells and things at eye level, blowing in the breeze. Makes me feel fine, I sang. Life, I thought, is about rare moments like these. I rolled my head to one side to see the sky. I wanted to be looking at the sky when I died. But that didn't happen. I didn't die. Instead, I reminisced. I was moved to recall another time lying face down, but this time on a beach. I believe I was listening to the surf then. The evening was drawing in. It was still light enough to observe a lone jet trail as it ran across my line of vision. The jet trail had turned pink in the setting sun. I remembered wondering where the jet was going and wishing I could be on it. I couldn't move a muscle in this memory either. There was something stopping me from moving. There's always been something stopping me, I thought. Lying prone on a beach had the quality of a very recent memory. I tried exploring it. I tried to visualize other things about the beach. But I could recall nothing else. I was chewing my chapped lips thoughtfully when a boy came and stood over me. He put himself right into the sunlight above me, shrouding himself in it like an angel with a halo. What's your name? he asked. I understood him perfectly. I'd forgotten I could speak English. He said I didn't smell very good. I'm not feeling too well either, I explained. What's that song you were singing? he asked. I rolled my head away to shelter my eyes. I didn't want to look at him anymore with the sun directly behind him. He obliged me by kneeling down. He had a pleasant face, I discovered, messy brown hair and smart green eyes. Even in the poor state I was in, I got to like his youth and easiness straight away. I thanked him for moving his position. I'm going back to play, he said. I asked him his name. He said his name was Jamie and he had a camp by the lake. I asked if he was with his parents. He looked away then, fidgeting. My voice was so weak I guess he hadn't understood me. He did a funny thing with his mouth, sucking in his cheeks. He seemed nervous all of a sudden, bouncing on his haunches, and whenever our eyes met, his would flit away and he'd start sucking at his cheeks again. I looked back at the hot sky. To me it all made the most perfect sense. I felt that everything about it had to be savored. 
I was aware that Jamie's presence might be an hallucination, a flamboyant vision that would be the precursor to my death. As well as the array of torments racking my body, I could feel the grass tickling the back of my neck. I gathered some in each hand and tugged at the roots, feeling the blades snap and give as I pulled. My lips were so dry I kept having to lick them wet. Jamie was still talking off to my left. Almost certain he would vanish, I didn't dare look at him or answer. He was asking me where I was from. I tried to look in his direction. He jumped to his feet. He seemed surprised by something. I laughed the kind of laugh that turns into a hacking cough. Jamie, I said, I need your help. I wanted to push myself up, but my right arm was in too much pain to be useful. The left one had hardly any strength in it. It may have startled him, seeing me grovel like a drunk and fall back to the ground. He stepped away. Get your parents, I told him. I'm not well. A breeze picked up, rustling the grass around my neck and ears. It was a pleasant, beckoning swish that I could hear all too distinctly. I closed my eyes to be a part of it, drifting in and out of consciousness, I suppose. I wanted to talk to him some more, but I couldn't. It was like the dream of seeing something you need but you can't ever reach, or like sitting in a chair and no matter how hard you try, you can't get up. By forcing myself to open my eyes, I became slightly more alive to everything around me. I managed to bring myself back to some extent, glancing over at Jamie once more. He was still there, leaning his head towards his left shoulder, looking at me sideways. I could see he was trying to think the situation through. It must have been a peculiar thing. A man in the grass, in a ruined suit, hasn't shaved, wasted and half crazy, claiming to be unwell. Yet the man is obviously grinning. Jamie didn't seem all that bothered. My guess is he was ten or eleven, with his whole life ahead of him. He may have been thinking this kind of thing happens all the time. I could imagine him accepting my being there in the meadow was just one of those things. If anything bothered him, it was the way I spoke. He told me I had a funny accent. I didn't answer. With his perfectly pitched voice and natural movements, he was just a sweet kid helping me to die. I sighed and looked back into the blueness of the day. I was glad he could be with me. I was about to expire in a place with a faint garlicky smell, and that was fine. My last breaths were being lifted into the breeze, and I was prepared to conclude my life there and then. Only Jamie's matter-of-fact voice might have been able to disturb this final impression, and it did. I've got some chocolate, I heard him say. When I looked back, he was pulling a chocolate bar out of his pocket. He held it up and shook it, as if it had a bell in it. My stomach opened into a place the size of a small country and a lick of saliva seeped around the back of my tongue. My arm shook as I reached out. Jamie encouraged me to take it. That I managed to sit up without thinking was miraculous, nor was I forced back by the pain shackling my body. I seemed to levitate upwards, my attention so riveted to Jamie's offering, I must have forgotten how destroyed I was. The bar was bent out of shape from being in Jamie's pocket for too long. 
It had melted in the heat. I tore the brown paper wrapping off and threw it to the grass. I began to work at the tinsel embedded in the softening chocolate. It was just a chocolate bar, but when I managed to free up a square and pop it into my mouth, I knew I wanted to live on and enjoy other aspects of life. I chewed as if each contraction of my mouth counted for something. My eyes were brimming with tears as the juices slowly combined into a dark melting sweetness. A great eruption of feeling to do with gratitude momentarily collided with a natural sadness I often feel. I didn't let myself dwell on the inevitable conclusion of this experience for a second longer than I needed to. Instead, as I chewed, I mused further on how extremely profound life is to come up with something so perfectly satisfying as a bar of chocolate. Jamie watched me eat it, standing away from me now. As far as I could express anything, I expressed my satisfaction. I was mumbling things, triggered off words and phrases. This is it, I said. This is heaven, I said. He made another comment about my voice sounding foreign. More precisely, he said, You don't sound English. I was still chewing in rapture, but more absent-mindedly. As I broke off a second square and put that into my mouth, I could see the trail I had trampled down the slope to get where I was. It was a long, swerving hack through the high grass we were in. Every pink and blue flower seemed to pop out at me. I looked at Jamie and nodded. I could feel the benefits and energies of cocoa and sugar pumping through my veins and the vibrancy of sharpening mental processes. You can have it all if you like, Jamie said. I've got more at the camp. I nodded again, thanking him profusely, but unable to say it. My mouth was so mulched up by then. I kept nodding and looking around, the nod turning into an affirmation of everything I could see around me. It felt highly irregular, not knowing my name or how I'd got myself into this absurd position. My emotional state was already oversensitive, but the now recurring memory of lying on a beach somewhere, observing a jet trail, was becoming mysteriously traumatic. At the thought of it again, my head fell backwards. As it hit the grass, I choked on a clump of chocolate too big to swallow. I must have blacked out then, maybe for some time. It felt like dying all over again. If I didn't completely die, it was only because I needed to know more. I'd been bolstered not only by his chocolate, but by this boy's appearance. Some part of me was coming to realize he was no illusion, and it wouldn't be long before I came across other people as well. When I opened my eyes again, Jamie was gone. I could see the crumpled wrapper by my leg, along with shreds of tinsel I'd scattered around. My fingers were stained brown and still sweet to taste. I'd suffered some sunburn, especially around my nose and forehead. My lips were extremely chapped. These were discomforts, and good ones to focus on because they were relatively mild compared to the rest. I rolled onto my left arm and was just about able to push up onto my knees. I was facing the direction where Jamie had said his camp was. I groaned as I stood, almost losing balance, but keeping myself upright. The first steps forward must have been like the first steps I'd ever taken. Awkward and clumsy, without the faintest idea of where I was going, but knowing how urgently I needed to get there.
Chapter 17 When he was at Yale, Barry Heller learned a poem to be recited whenever he was with drinking companions. The first line went, Spring has sprung, the grass is riz, I wonder where the birdie is. It was the seasonal beauty of the day that swept those words out from whatever stack of forgotten memories they'd been left under. The wind swirled and braced him, toppling a fast food carton into the gutter close to where he was standing. A truly vibrant sun picked up tiny new leaves in each of the saplings. The saplings had been planted at regular intervals, Barry thought, to demonstrate how easily nature could be dominated. Stifling a snigger, he recalled more of the poem about spring his drinking buddies had once taught him. He remembered being in bars with them, watching basketball, and everybody flipping peanuts into their mouths. He remembered how they could put away a gallon of beer with whiskey chasers and walk out into the street, cracking themselves up by bothering passers-by. These were the long days of fooling around when nothing was complicated, just amusing. Barry remembered how those wonderful college guys could rattle off all kinds of locker room songs and pithy poems. They would teach him the words as part of his initiation into the great, gutsy, brawling times ahead. Most of his youth was now a years-long blur. He probably hadn't thought once about being young since he'd been in banking. At least one poem had stuck, though, and it was so simple and beguiling, Barry felt he had to share it with the rest of the world right away. He stood by one of the newly planted saplings, grabbing it by the throat, willing the tree to listen. He gestured and flapped with his free hand, like Gene Kelly singing in the rain, hanging on to a lamppost. Pedestrians took it for granted that he had a condition and kept out of his way. He nearly yanked the poor tree out of the ground, declaring, very theatrically now, Some say the birdie is on the wing, but I say the wing is on the birdie. Barry wasn't talking to himself. He was talking to the tree. He laughed at that thought. He noticed his enthusiasm for poetry made his accent more American. He felt the sun in his face and said to the tree in his grip, bending it towards him, isn't life tremendous? It's like a great pageant you can wander through. He tapped his head to show where the great pageant was and squinted at the sun. There were plenty of suspicious and diverted eyes. It was the lunch hour in the city of Bristol. Traffic was juddering all the way up to the railway station. People in their cars couldn't help staring at the crazy man. Of course, Barry wasn't crazy. He was reminiscing. He wandered on, following the line of trees, recalling things that had happened to him long ago. There was the time he hit a bus learning to drive his father's green Pontiac. He smacked into the back of it on a street in Baltimore. His father was in the car, cringing and angry, even though it was just a tap and there was no serious damage. Barry marveled at how spacious his own outlook had been in those days, before he could drive and worry about things. You should learn to relax, he said to someone who'd rolled down their window to stare at him. Something about the image of someone staring out of a window put Barry in mind of the first time he flew and had to grab the hand of the passenger next to him during a spell of turbulence and how the guy had looked at him as if he was a headcase or something. 
And here I am, Barry thought, in Bristol, England, busy thoroughfares and pixie trees all lined up, and squat, brick-built buildings hunching over everyone. They look like wrestlers sizing each other up. None of the exhilaration of New York, which is truly towering. Barry recalled how the lines in New York took him to heaven whenever he looked at the sky. He recalled how in Manhattan everybody had to bend right back to see heaven. He did this now. He bent his head back further than he had to, as if he was in Manhattan again, reaching for the sky. An airliner passed overhead. It was the most thrilling sight and another victory for democracy. The jet banked left and glinted for Barry, telling him his thinking was right and his timing immaculate. He was so grateful he waved at the jet, which must have come from JFK. There was no question in Barry's mind. He hadn't washed or shaved, and his legs were itchy. The slacks were too tight. The sneakers were cramping his toes, forcing him to limp. He couldn't button the jacket together, which didn't match the slacks anyway. The shirt had been white before he'd spilt a tub of sweet and sour pork on it and then slept rough in it. Barry had stolen these clothes from different lockers in the male nurse's changing room in the hospital. He wrapped his arms around his sides, stretching the jacket even more, making it feel like a straight jacket. It was freezing in each new blast of an April wind, but a wonderful freezing, because it was spring and Barry had sprung. He heard the Peruvians and ran right onto the station concourse. It was so much warmer out of the wind. There were greater concentrations of people and distractions everywhere. The icky smells of a hairdresser, the shock colors of a newsagent, different bars and food outlets and televisions hanging from the roof with timetables flickering on them and the echo of everyone in a hurry dominated by announcements and apologies for delays and cancellations. Barry could still hear the Peruvians, but he didn't see where they were. A lady in a blue raincoat walked over and handed him a plastic bag. It had apples in it. You really ought to eat, she said. He wanted to hug her, but she left too quickly. She blended into a crowd heading towards a train. It was such a considerate thing she'd done. Barry was about to go after her, but he heard the Peruvians strike up another tune and the trill of their wonderful pan pipes. He searched again and found three short, dark men wearing woven slippers and two-tone ethnic hats. One of them was playing the pipes, the others had guitars. They were standing halfway down a set of steps and had a box to collect coins in. It was such innocent music, like thin air, almost no sound at all. It was haunting, yet happy, with a gentle rhythm Barry could sway to. He shut his eyes and swayed until someone tapped him on the shoulder. There were two of them, in uniform. Everything all right, sir? The older one didn't say anything. It was the younger one who needed to talk. The music hadn't stopped, so Barry said, Yes, everything is good, officer. They didn't show it, but they would have been put out by his serenity. The younger one said, Are you traveling somewhere? Barry shook his head. No, I've come to get my hair cut. They didn't like it when Barry ruffled his greasy hair. They edged back. I was distracted by the music, Barry told them. It really is very charming. There was a lull as they listened to the Peruvians perform, and finally the older one said, Mind how you go, sir. 
They moved off to patrol elsewhere and were sucked safely back into the crowd. Barry knew they would never catch him. He took an apple out and bit it almost in half. It was juicy and sweet and so perfect with the music. I'm ready, he thought. It's time to act. The lady hairdresser took one look at him and pointed to the door. Go on, out you go. She had no intention of being nice, and she didn't want any apples either. I need a haircut, Barry said. Not in here you don't. Her scowl reminded him of a blind dog his grandfather used to dote on, called Bruno. She didn't seem to hear what he was saying. He tried again, more slowly and slightly louder. I have to get my hair cut before I travel. One more step and I'll call the police. There was another lady hairdresser, a younger one, blow-drying a customer's hair. She switched her blow-dryer off so they could all hear what Barry had to say next. He didn't look like he intended to leave. He was wavering, though. He had to accept the situation was irreconcilable. The lady hairdressers clearly weren't going to negotiate. He wondered if he could adapt his plan. The older lady hairdresser said, I don't want you in here. Barry pointed to the floor. I notice you haven't swept up yet. What? The woman looked at the pile of hair on the floor where Barry was pointing. I'll go, Barry said, but only if you give me some hair. Call the police, Cassandra, she said to her colleague. Right away. But Cassandra was young and unsure. Just a scoop, Barry insisted, and I promise I'll get out of your hair. He liked that, smiling at his own cleverness in what was otherwise rapidly turning into a murky business. He held his apple bag open for the older lady hairdresser to put some hair in. She didn't find it in the least bit amusing, but she licked her lips, bent down, picked up a generous amount, and dropped it in the bag. There, now get out. Barry took an apple out. You sure you don't want an apple? Get out! As he was leaving, she added, Don't you dare come back! Barry wasn't just a feather floating in the wind. He'd been tricking everyone. First, he had to get to the station and pretend to be about his ordinary business. He suspected the authorities might be after him and wondered if the uniformed foot patrol would be back before long. Now he had the means to fool them. He had a plan. His own hair would have been best for this. The idea had been to get it cut, then distribute clumps of it at intervals leading out into the street. That way the authorities would still think he was in Bristol. Then he could double back and slip onto a train bound for the West Country. In the event, he was forced to use someone else's hair, but the plan should still work because he was going to be distributing it. Barry was able to dodge the uniform foot patrol as they left the station, following his false trail of hair. Nothing can stop a determined man, he thought, and it was imperative that he rejoined his family. He was wiser now, and more lucid about things. He would certainly have to rebuke Teresa for uprooting the kids, leaving them in the lurch like that, settling with them so far from London. On the other hand, being elevated by a clearer vision, Barry had resolved to forgive Teresa as long as she let him move back in.